Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. Even though it's been almost 30 years since Mike Harris won the 1995 election and ushered in his so-called common sense revolution, you can still spark a pretty intense argument when you raise the name of Ontario's 22nd Premier. If you liked him, he was the guy who did what he said he was going to do. Cut taxes, balance budgets, and make government smaller. If you didn't like him, he was the guy responsible for deaths in Walkerton and Ipperwash. Alistair Campbell was one of Harris's senior most advisors, and he's put together a collection of essays designed to give the Premier's time in office a second look. The book is called The Harris Legacy, Reflections on a Transformational Premier, and it brings Alistair Campbell to our studio tonight. It's good to see you again. How are you doing? Uh, happy to be here. Excellent. Let's start with a little excerpt from the book. Uh, you write, it is not an overstatement based on the evidence accumulated in this collection of essays to say that we live in Mike Harris's Ontario today. And the concern that this legacy was both meaningful and perhaps unfairly maligned, or at least underappreciated, created the initial impetus for this editorial project. So let's start there, Alistair. Give us some examples of why you think we're still living, still living in Mike Harris's Ontario. So the, the book project ended up uh, kind of exposing a thesis, which was that in fact, despite the controversies of the time, almost nothing Harris did was reversed by his largely liberal successors. Uh, and so uh, the city of Toronto was not unmerged. The monolith of Ontario Hydro that uh, he blew up wasn't reconstituted. Uh, almost none of the 40 uneconomic small hospitals that he closed were reopened. The welfare rates that he meanly cut weren't raised back up by his replacements. The massive parkland expansion wasn't paved over. In fact, the Oak Ridge's moraine, which he protected, would be a vivid example. And current Premier Ford has just discovered that even that part of the Harris legacy is impossible to reverse. So, and there are numerous other examples that you give in the course of the book as to why you think we're still living in Mike Harris's Ontario. I should ask as the follow-up, did Mike Harris have any editorial influence in the publishing of this book? He did not. He was aware of the project. Uh, he saw it when it had been sent to a typeset. Uh, he had a couple of questions and comments about it. I think in general, he's pleased that it's a balanced perspective, but no, he had no control on the output. Was he upset with any part of it? I think he felt that uh, his former staffer, Guy Giorno, was a bit tough on him. His former chief of staff, Guy Giorno, wrote a fairly tough chapter on yeah. him. That's true. Yeah, he noticed that. <laughs> he noticed that. Okay. Was Mike Harris, in your judgment, the Ontario version of the Ronald Reagan-Margaret Thatcher revolution? So the common sense revolution was definitely, at least in part, a drawing from the same motivations and ideological underpinnings that Thatcher and Reagan were kind of tapping into. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the legacy of Harris, I think, is actually a little bit, little bit more consequential. You know, Reagan taxes got cut, they went back up. Um, uh, Thatcher, some of the stuff that she privatized, people are now thinking was a mistake. Mm. Uh, but consistently across the board, what Harris did has stuck. 
uh, and very little of it is on the current political agenda for reversal now. Would you say he is a neoconservative ideologue, as many of his critics thought? I don't think that's fair either. In fact, David Frum, in his nice little uh, uh, forward to the book, describes the common sense revolution as being uniquely a Canadian term, kind of like progressive conservative or you know, conscription if necessary, but not necessarily conscription. We take things that are not normally reconcilable and turn them into kind of a compromised, balanced and sensible way forward. And the common sense revolution, I think in many ways, was a logical succession to uh, Bill Davis' progressive conservatism. You know that Bill Davis' supporters think that's absolute hogwash. You know that, right? They, they do not see the two premiers as even being in the same party, even though technically they were. And so I think uh, uh, Premier Davis was always very supportive of Michael, as he called him. He did call him Michael. Uh, and I think uh, the time that Harris spent on the backbench watching Premier Davis and the Top Gun uh, Davis-era cabinet ministers, the Darcy McHughes and the Frank Millers, Mike drew from all of that. Uh, and by the time he got to be premier himself, he was a deep student of public policy. There was no file he didn't understand the stakeholder map on and have an opinion on. Uh, and those opinions might not have been exactly the same as those held by Davis-era ministers. But in the end, uh, he ended up, I think, running uh, an Ontario uh, to a better place than it had been, which every premier hopes to achieve. Well, I would say for the record, when he ran in 1981 in that election, Mike Harris did have Equipe Davis, Squadra Davis, for the French and Italian residents in his constituency. So he was running as a Bill Davis conservative in 1981. He absolutely was, and I don't think he ever apologized for that. Right. Okay, I want to take aim at one of the things that Mike Harris loves to portray himself as, and that is as a tax fighter. He loves his reputation as a tax fighter, and I wonder if it is as well-deserved as you and he think. Yes, he cut the provincial portion of income taxes by 30%, but he also brought in something in that same first term called the fair share health levy, which raised premiums, quote-unquote, taxes, on other people as well. So at the end of the day, tell me why he wasn't just taking from one pocket and putting it into another. Yeah, so first of all, net, the taxes were lower in total. Uh, and second, uh, in fact, you should be applauding this as another vivid example of uh, Bill Davis-type progressive conservatism. The fair share health care levy tilted as a surtax on higher incomes. And so it was a way of making sure that the tax cuts implemented had the most impact on those at the lowest income. Is it fair to say the budget would have been balanced more quickly had he not cut taxes as much as he did because you would have realized more revenues and therefore the books would have been more buoyant? So uh, we have an economist in the first chapter and the two fiscal uh, academic journalists in the second chapter who both tackled that. In the end, uh, Ontario's economic growth in the Harris era was disproportionately impressive relative to the rest of Canada and relative to the competing states in the US that have kind of the similar neighbor neighborhood and industrial kind of mix. Uh, we outperformed them all. It's entirely possible to argue that the tax cuts helped create some of that economic growth. One more on taxes here. You did next to nothing on corporate taxes. No cuts there. You imposed higher capital taxes on banks. So again, how much of that tax fighter reputation does he do actually deserve? I think he, once again, is exemplifying balanced progressive conservative behavior. He was cutting for individuals. He wasn't in favor of corporate welfare. He did not favor big business. He uh, tried to achieve the financial objectives of a rapid economic growth, achieved, balanced budget, achieved, 
and getting Ontario back to being the economic powerhouse at the centre of a prosperous Canada. Let's focus on the issue of privatization, which, as you might imagine, we were paying a bit of attention to here at this television station because uh, considering the privatization of TV Ontario was one of the things that was in the Common Sense Revolution. Sheldon, you want to put this graphic up? Another excerpt from the book. This by uh, Terence Corcoran and Jack Mintz. In our view, failure to follow through on privatizing the government-owned television station TV Ontario is not a significant indicator of policy failure. The station's value was minimal in 1999, and it remains of limited importance in the grand scheme of the province's political and economic structure. But they go on to say, and incidentally, on, on this we agree, they go on to blast the Harris government for its, and their word, failure to sell off the LCBO, Liquor Control Board of Ontario, and they give the Harris years an overall grade of F on privatization. So what do you have to say about that? So I think uh, the agenda of privatization, that kind of Thatcher part of uh, the ideology of the time of neoconservatism, was definitely uh, something that everybody assumed Harris would do. Uh, and in a couple of examples, uh, which I think uh, Corcoran and Mintz could have given more credit to, uh, for instance, we privatized nuclear plants. Uh, Bruce Power. Uh, is one of the fantastic successes of the period. And uh, it's hard to imagine today even saying those words in the same sentence and not having a lot of controversy. Harris achieved substantial privatization, but on the case of TVO, the value uh, that was offered was only marginal. Uh, and uh, in the case of the LCBO, that was the decision I still wasn't happy about at the time and still not happy about now. You wish they had sold it. Yeah, absolutely. But um, uh, I've just moved to Alberta. I, I have a lot more choice there. One of the things that the government did sell was the Highway 407, the toll highway across the top of Toronto. And you got $3.1 billion for it. Today it's worth $30 billion. Question, was that the worst decision the Harris government made? So the, uh, the book would say no. Uh, in fact, I was surprised by uh, Terence Corcoran's conclusion on that uh, and Jack's. I think the thought process was, you know, that was a competitive auction. That was the best bid at the time. There was uncertainty as to whether the technology would work. There was uncertainty as to people, whether they would use the road. Uh, and the value is increased because uh, interest rates changed from that time to this time. And that's how you do business valuations. Uh, and the values changed because the private sector that owns it has tripled its length and doubled its width uh, and made it a way more valuable uh, highway without taxpayer cost. So it was a decision made at the time. It was not the worst decision uh, to do so. And we have a really good highway that is a tremendous relief at the top end of GTA. It's no longer generating income for the Treasurer of Ontario, though. Correct. But the maintenance costs also are not borne by Treasury. Okay. Obviously, the biggest chunk of the public that voted four years after the first election were content enough with what they saw because they re-elected Mike Harris with an even bigger proportion of the popular vote four years off afterwards. So tell me this, why almost 30 years after his first election do you think he is still blamed for a lot of what people don't like in the province of Ontario today? So I think the uh, largest single explanation for that is that uh, the work that was done to bring the province back into balance required uh, discipline on spending for public sector unions. Uh, and, you know, this 
public policy debate over how to split public-private is always uh, a tough one. Uh, and that battle became more intense in the period of Bob Ray. Uh, and Premier Ray bravely tried uh, innovations like the social contract to, to try and address this balance question uh, and blew up his own party, I think, in the process of which he stopped being an NDP or himself while still Premier uh, representing that party. Uh, Harris was just the next in line in a debate that continued afterwards. The teachers' unions and the intensity of their uh, contestation with whoever's in power about what share they should have for their monopoly union, that's all very tough stuff. So at the time, that was controversial. Since then, the people writing the history largely are those people. And so their anger has... I think helped lead to the risk of cancellation of a more accurately balanced version of history that would show the good things and the tough things that Harris did. One more question before we get some other advice for you from the table here. In terms of the common sense revolution, after it was over, I mean, I, I, I point out, I put on the record that Mike Harris did get reelected to consecutive majority governments. But after that progressive conservative era ran its course, the Tories were in the wilderness for 15 years. What do you infer from that? So I think, um, as we're probably seeing federally in Canada now, uh, Canada has a healthy instinct about time for a change. Uh, and in a democracy, it's often a good idea to switch governments over time. Uh, and I suspect that's exactly what was happening uh, when Ernie Eves lost, having uh, stepped in to replace Harris. Um, the number of terms the Liberals achieved, I think, could be owned by later Tories than Harris, because uh, I think there was probably an opportunity to win the third election and the fourth that were missed uh, for different reasons. Against Dalton McGuinney and Kathleen Wynne. Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know that uh, the Harris legacy is the primary explanation for the long period after. We may have some differences of opinion on that front, as we will discover I would here. Hope so it's Canada. After there all. we go. There we go. Let's get into some more discussion going on about the Harris legacy. Joining us now on the line, let's welcome Sandra Pupatello. She was a liberal MPP from 1999 to 2011, a former cabinet minister as well. And here in our studio, Marilyn Shirley, New Democrat MPP from 1990 to 2005 and a cabinet minister in Bob Ray's government. Chloe Brown is here, policy analyst at the Future Skills Centre and a former two-time Toronto mayoral candidate. And Robert Benzie, the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. And Sandra, it's great to see you on the line from Points Beyond. Appreciate you being here. To our friends around the table here, it's great to see all of you again as well. Let's, uh, I want to start with a very neutral, lean, open-ended question. Sandra Pupatello, as you think back on the Common Sense Revolution years, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I often think of Buzz Hargrove, to be honest, and the the uh, absolutely incredible way that he was able to muster protests. I don't think we've seen anything like it since. So that's the first thing I think of when I think of the CSR. Um, and I do appreciate everyone has a different perspective, but the way we lived and breathed those protests was the first time that I had seen riot gear and police at the precinct. Uh, and I remember... Uh, just being absolutely gobsmacked at what I was witnessing in my own province, which you ordinarily see on CNN somewhere, you know, in some far-flung place. So I do think the era was marred by a lot of those protests and people who were, 
maybe rebounding again from having argued with the NDP government, now arguing on the other side with the Conservative government. And I just remember our first term in office, um, all of our stakeholders had to realize, wow, maybe we don't have to fight after all. And we try to really just have a calm in the center. Um, but yeah, that's what I think of. Marilyn, I should ask the same question to you. And, and let's remember that the Harris government replaced the government that you were a part of and won in part by pledging to overturn much of what you had done in the five years you were in power. So how do you remember those years? Which they did. And that was part of the common sense uh, revolution. And that, that's the reality of it. And I, you know, I have a different perspective. I do want to congratulate you on the book, by the way, because I think you put together some very interesting and diverse opinion writers. And I, I think that that goes a long way into just in describing your view of the Harris years. But what I remember are all the cuts and deregulation. And of course, I remember Walkerton. I got into politics as an environmental activist. I still am. And I have to say at this point about Walkerton that one of the, the sections in the book says in reality the privatization of Ontario's routine testing for water was not the Harris government CSR target list. It said it was part of a plan introduced in 1993 by the Minister of the Environment and the Ray government. The SRA reports, at best, this is disingenuous. It just is not true. Well, wait, wait a minute. It no. is accurate. Uh, no, because the NDP never privatized and, in fact, set up a crown corporation, which is very different from privatization. So I don't know why you say that's accurate. Because the water testing aspects of the public utility commissions that took place at that time was a process initiated by the NDP. Yeah, under a crown corporation. Okay, yeah. you want to come yeah. in on that? I will only say that uh, the chapter that's being cited here, uh, Gordon Miller was the environment commissioner, first of such, uh, appointed by Harris, but reappointed under McGuinty, uh, and I think Wynne, uh, and Rand Green uh, in was the a last Green Party election. Candidate. So yes. uh, uh, we didn't pick a partisan uh, here. I understand from this that, topic. Alice, but I have to say that the NDP, it's foolish, if nothing else, to say that the NDP would have privatized water testing, and they didn't. It was a Crown Corporation. And, and, and in, in, in our first year, there were all over 600 plants that were inspected under this private, under this uh, Crown Corporation. Um, they were inspected, whereas under the Harris years, I don't know, there was a third or something done. So this needs to be, shall I say then, to be fair, explored a little more. Okay. Because the NDP Point. never did privatize water testing and, in fact, did a great job with this Crown Corporation. Let me go to Robert Benzie then. You know that conservatives believe that you are part of uh, a kind of an axis of evil. There's the CBC, the Toronto Star, the public sector unions which sort of were in cahoots to destroy Mike Harris, even from the second he took office. I just came back from the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me, now that you've had sort of two and a half decades uh, of, of opportunity to kind of, and you, you know, you reviewed the book for your newspaper, to, to reconsider the Harris government's legacy, do you come to any different conclusions today about what you were reporting on two and a half decades ago? Not really in the sense that uh, I thought Alistair did a great job on the book. Uh, we gave it a full page in the Star when it came out uh, last fall. And it's because it's important that this kind of history is, is shared with Ontarians, shared with Torontonians. And I, th I think uh, 
I think there was good perspective in it. I mean, the chapter on April Wash that, that Alistair wrote is very critical of Premier Harris, and the star was very creamer, critical of Premier Harris and the decisions that were made around the, the death of protester Dud Dudley George at April Wash Provincial Park you know, almost 30 years ago. That was a very, that was a seminal moment, I think, for Indigenous relations in this, in this province. And um, it certainly carried out throughout the time that Harris was Premier. When the Liberals came in, they had a, an inquiry into what happened uh, after 2003. So I think, I think at the time the star was critical of Mr. Harris and as a watchdog, but I think that, that the paper all, and I, I worked for the National Post actually when Harris was, was Premier. Uh, I, I switched to the, to, to, uh, to the star when, uh, when Eves was Premier. But um, it, it, I think that they were critical of him, but they took him seriously. And I think, I think he should have been taken seriously. And I, and I think Alistair's right that his legacy should be taken seriously because so much of what's happened since he left office has not changed. It hasn't been undone by Kathleen Wynne or Dalton McGuinty or Ernie Eves or Doug Ford. Let me do a quick follow-up on Ipperwash. Ipperwash happened, that whole protest. First Nations took over the park. It was a provincial park. It happened very soon after Mike Harris became Premier of Ontario. Do you think his lack of experience in the job as Premier contributed to to the disaster that that became. I think that's very clear. Uh, and as I tried to articulate in my editor's note on this, uh, I don't think any of us are too surprised that, you know, that what we were taught in school about Canada's history with regard to First Nations turns out not to have been the actual history. Uh, and that there is uh, uh, decades of unwinding and obligations that we will have into the future to try and address this. Uh, there's also no doubt that there's a better awareness of things like systemic bias and the idea that the OPP may have had some of that uh, is, I think, something where we all understand now. All of this stuff happened in the very first weeks of Harris, and it was the consequence of decades of mismanagement by the federal government with regard to this portion of land, which they had expropriated from this First Nations group. The fact that they chose to occupy a provincial park to protest made it uh, something that uh, challenged Harris and that challenged Harris in the very first weeks that he was premier and very focused on implementing the Common Sense Revolution platform. Uh, as the inquiry demonstrated, nothing he did or said had anything to do with the tragic outcome. It happened during his time. But any leader has the obligation at a moment of crisis, you can either ramp up the tension or you could ease the tension. Uh, and Harris chose the wrong route on that day uh, at that meeting that was described over and over again in the inquiry. In which it, he said, get those effing Indians out of the park. what he said. Well, his uh, attorney general the, said that's what the he tone, said. The tone wasn't healthy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and the outcome uh, from that meeting was nothing. Uh, the tragedy happened during Harris, not because of Harris. But, uh, and that would be true, I think, of Walkerton as well. Mm. Uh, but in both cases, uh, it's part of the legacy and needs to be included in any discussion. Right. Chloe, I want to get you in here now. And I've left you for last purposely because while all the rest of us kind of live through this professionally, um, were you even born when, I, when Mike Harris got elected, <laughs> I should ask? I was in kindergarten. I'm born in 1990. Oh, you're born in 1990? Yes. So the year Bob Ray's government got elected. Okay. Yes. Well, the reason we wanted you here is that obviously your generation has inherited the Harris legacy. and. And, and I'm curious, I, I'm, I'm deputizing you right now as being responsible for speaking for an entire generation of people who are right. your age. When you think of the Mike Harris years now, what do you think? Not 
happy in the slightest. One, three things that I think about are rent control and the Residential Tenants Act. I think about the LT, the OLT, which is the Ontario Land Tribunal, which is one of the worst places I had to actually go for a rent increase to fight it. And I've never been so dehumanized. So it's one of those things where it's like housing, education, we have a labor shortage in constructions, the industrial arts, that all happened because Harris fired 10,000 teachers. And that's something I will remember from Harris's legacy, saying goodbye to the shop teacher, home economics, my music teachers, all these very in need skills that are absent in the labor market right now. So that has a consequence in itself because we have a skill deficit that was created because of a choice to defund vocational education, the arts, and et cetera. And you, you blame the Mike Harris government for that? Yes, because 10,000 teachers is a lot. And when I think about working at Toronto Metropolitan University and the types of skills that are offered at universities and colleges right now, they're playing catch up with what was lost in uh, grade 13, the, the elementary school system. So that, that exposure to shop class created construction workers. With no shop classes, now you have a deficit of construction workers. Um, the industrial arts, which is skilled trades, is something that is constantly being funded by federal provincial governments, but you're not getting people in it because you haven't changed the industry conditions. Um, then rent control. I live in an apartment. I have to live in an apartment that was built before 2018 because there's no rent control on any unit after that. Well, he didn't abolish rent control. No, but he gave us new builds. Yes, but mm -hmm. he gave us the Ontario Land Tribunal where privileged homeowners can go to stop building low income housing. When I was a kid, I grew up in a public housing apartment complex. Those haven't been subsidized or supported since the Harris government. Now we have a backlog of housing for everyone. And then the third thing is comparing our nurses to hula hoops, the hula hoop makers or whatever. <laughs> that comment made the book. <sighs> yeah. It's frustrating because as we deal with this mental health crisis, and I think about the fact that Every conservative government refuses to pay the staff to get the training and the expansion of community and home-based care that we need. We have a mental health crisis that's spilling out in the streets. Combine that with the housing crisis, we have a homelessness crisis that is really playing out into some violent outcomes for the rest of us. So while I, I will not squarely put this on Harris's shoulders, his style of neoliberalism and his really good execution of those ideologies is what has us here. And I would critique common sense revolution by saying common sense is only common around the people you commonly surround yourself with. If you're not outside that circle, that common sense is not translatable. And as a working class person, that his common sense did not translate to the realities that I face even now as an adult. Um. Sandra, you and I both well remember that the opposition politicians of the day often tried to portray Mike Harris as sort of this dumb golf pro from North Bay who kind of didn't understand Toronto. But as it turns out, you know, if you take the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, the National Ballet School, uh, Royal Conservatory of Music, I mean, his government made huge investments, maybe unprecedented investments in those institutions. Did you guys misjudge him on that score? I think that when I have to reflect the way he was being portrayed as some golfer from North Bay, I think that was wholly unfair. I never met him until I met him when I was elected in 95. 
And the instant I met him in person, I knew exactly why he had been elected as premier and not Lynn McLeod in that election. He he really did have a common touch. I have to I have to give him that. Um, I will put the the benefit of all of those investments and endowments into the arts, probably at the feet of Isabel Bassett, who was very influential uh, in Mike Harris's government. And I think she was a huge proponent for the arts. And that did actually come through her when she was Minister of Culture. And we used to watch that pretty intently that uh, she was very quiet, but she was very influential. Um, so I, I don't think that would have been his reasoning for going into politics for sure. Um, and I am interested in hearing all of this common when we reflect back, um, there was always the instant where we're not going to get the toothpaste back in the tube. And we kept having to use that phrase because it, it exactly described our issues. When a hospital is closed, it's really, really tough to reopen. Um, once you've gotten rid of certain levels of something, it's very hard to institute because A, it takes a lot of money. And when we were elected in 2003, books weren't balanced. They were far from balanced. And I know every government says that, but I kind of didn't expect that from that crowd that we had taken the government from. Um, we did fight some of those items in court and lost, uh, like the 407, where we did try to take it back into public hands. We failed. We tried. Um, you know, even minor items that for some uh, were a big deal, like the squeegee kids. I remember that vividly. Um, just recently this week, I think, another group attempted to switch the, pro the policy and failed at court. So uh, there were a lot of attempts, I think, uh, by many governments since Mike Harris days to try to get back. Um, it would be kind of interesting that you would go back and tear apart the mega city of Toronto. Notice that nobody locally is asking for that, even though years later they never did find the savings that they purported to have because of the mega city. Right. So it is interesting that many sort of moved on to the issue of today as opposed to refighting those fights from back in the day. But Rob Benzie, I, I mean, I note I mean, all of what Sandra said is true. Once you close a hospital, it's really hard to build it up again. But the Harris government cut welfare rates by more than 21 percent which still left them 10% over the average of the other provinces in Canada. None of the governments subsequent to the Harris government raised the welfare rates back to what they originally were. What do you infer from that? Well, Sandra was the minister charged with trying to raise those rates right after. So remember, Sandra, the computer system that you inherited from the Tories didn't didn't allow for a welfare uh, raise. And it was a yeah, huge, Benzie, huge I'm, issue. Yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you, but I can tell you that we had to spend $10 million just on an IT system to allow to change the rate. And that's frankly why we weren't able to change the rate instantly. And it took us at least that first year before we could start to move that rate forward. But we did move it forward, albeit it did not go back to the levels that it was. Yeah, and, but Steve makes a good point. And, and I think that was one of the great themes of, of Alistair's book, of the essays in Alistair's book, is that I don't know if it's toothpaste comes out of the tube or also governments. I mean, when Dalton McGinty came in, there were some things that he could have done that he didn't do. And I think he didn't do them because he thought it wasn't worth the hassle. And he figures the pain has already been inflicted. Harris has absorbed the political damage. The liberals can then benefit from, you know, if they if there was a benefit. And I think there was some I mean, it's 
things that that McGinty did that 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 uh, Ford hasn't undone. We have full day kindergarten still. Ford didn't undo that. We have the HST still. Ford didn't deharmonize the sales they're, tax. They're not building new coal plants in the province. No one's building new coal plants. Uh, the and now and and Harris and it's in the book. Uh, the, the, the first coal plant was actually started closing under Mike Harris mm-hmm. in Nanaco uh, right. in, in uh, Lake Lakeview, which is now Mississauga. Of course, uh, Mississauga and poor credit. Yeah. Um, but so I think there's a lot of. I mean, there's almost like a continuum of government in in this province. Uh, I mean, there was some things that that yes, that Maryland's government did that Harris undid, but they got elected to undo those things. Well, let me give a Marilyn. I want to go to you on this because this is if you ask people today, which government was the best government of Ontario in the last 50 years on gay rights? You know, people might think it was the Bob Ray government. Um, but I'm not sure that it was. I mean, you had a, your caucus had an opportunity, your government had an opportunity to yeah. vote on a measure that would have extended same-sex rights, and it didn't get enough votes in the NDP caucus. When Harris was in power, the courts made a decision, told him to bring laws yeah. to be consistent with expanding gay rights, and he did it. So yeah. is, there, is there a bit of an anomaly yeah, here? Yeah, I, I think, and Bob Ray would, I would say this himself, I think, <laughs> that... It was a mistake to make it a free vote and depending too much on a liberal uh, promise to vote along or enough of their caucus to get a majority vote. Most of them that, opposed it, too. Yeah. And, you know, it was it's politics. They saw it as an opportunity to embarrass the NDP. Nonetheless, I would still say it was our responsibility to get it through yeah. in our caucus. Mm-hmm. And I still blame ourselves and that free vote. At the time, it's hard to believe now, but it was very controversial. Silly, <laughs> stupid, but it was very controversial. This wasn't even gay marriage. This was, yeah, this this was, was just, just yeah, I know, extending benefits. I know. So, so it's one of the, for me, a deep shame of our, our government that we weren't able to bring that forward. And I was happy to see as the years went by uh, that, that that all changed and now gay marriage. But can, can Just can before I, you leave that, yeah. let me, I'll come back to you in yeah. a second, but I want to get Chloe on that because your, your generation is obviously much more progressive on issues around LGBTQ yeah. than, say, generations of 50 years ago. And I wonder whether you give Mike Harris and his government uh, or whether you realize that this government did some stuff on LGBTQ rights that, that kind of nobody at the time thought was going to happen. It's fine that those legal measures were met, but then we're still arguing about sex ed and gender identity right now. So yes, I'm glad that he was able to give them legal rights within that system, but they're still pandering to the social conservatives for votes. And this is where I find a lot of young people have a very complicated relationship with progressive conservatives because it's like with one foot, they'll progress forward with trying to reorganize government in a way that's practical, but then they'll try to conserve 1950s, 1930s beliefs. And that is contrary to being progressive. Well, I don't want to get too far off the path here, yes. but the Ford government basically implemented the Win government sex ed program, even though they campaigned against it. Yes, but so, then they'll pander to the audience that's against it. So they're talking out both sides of their necks. I get you. Okay, Marilyn, you wanted well, to raise something else. Yeah, I do. And I, I think what was missing from the book, and I recognize that that it was a book to, in my view, perhaps rehabilitate my Harris a bit. But what was missing, and, and this is really important, and Chloe, you touched on it, is that some of the policies around, for instance, stopping 
building social housing. And in fact, not building it, but stopping about 17,000 units that were already in process or almost in, pro in process and downloading social housing to the city of Toronto and downloading other things, knowing that the city couldn't, all they could do is raise taxes, no other way to raise money without provincial consent. Um, the Safe Streets Act, the cutting the welfare, if you combine all of these and making it easier, rent control you brought up, so I won't go in it, into it again, but if you put all of those in a package and they're not identified in the book as real problems that exist today, and I think I can argue that, you know, these cuts against mostly poor people has contributed to our housing crisis and our homelessness crisis today. Let me get Alistair on that. There's no question you guys gutted social housing development, right? Correct. And the impact of which uh, is feeling is being felt today, and, do you and agree? And flagged uh, it by Ginny Roth in, in her chapter around municipal reform very explicitly. So that, was it yeah. a mistake to kill those programs? I don't know that it was a mistake at the time. We now face uh, a series of issues that new governments, like there's never no issues. Uh, and so there's always going to be things to fix in any system. Chloe's given a pretty good list of them. Uh, and I think the reality is that every new government is accountable for the facts as they inherit them. And some of them will have been caused by errors before. Some of them will just be the way the world's unfolding. Uh, and so this book isn't about prescribing the solutions to the social housing and homelessness issues we face today. Those are complicated and multi-government uh, multi-generational issues. Uh, so, yes, they should be fixed. But just back to LGBTQ, if I could, because mm -hmm. it exemplifies, I think, where Harris was strong. Uh, the Ray government had a chance to do it and couldn't. Uh, the Liberals took a position and then reversed it. Uh, and then Harris, who probably wasn't thinking of this as a number one or number ten issue, uh, gets a court ruling that's very specific to one item. He wasn't told to change all laws. He was changed, no, told he, to change this law. He decided to do that. And he, in his Mike Harris way, ordered up an omnibus bill which told the Ontario government to change 58 pieces of legislation and across the board uh, solved the problem that would have taken 20 years of politics to litigate otherwise. Hmm. And as a result, he gave moral permission for every other premier in Canada to do the same. And in fact, he, as Jamie Watt, I think beautifully articulates in this book, ended up, maybe not by deliberate choice, <laughs> being a pioneer of LGBTQ rights in Canada as part of his legacy. I would like us all to weigh in and finish on this here. And uh, Sheldon, I'm on page five. Let's go to that last board, board number three there, which we call, uh, why do they still hate him so much? <laughs> so here we go. Why do the critics of Harris hate him so much? He seems a nice enough fellow and is and was clearly well-intentioned, yet the blind and impassioned hatred comes through. Thoughtful groups that would never descend to ad hominem attacks in other areas seem to lose their judgment and restraint when it comes to Mike Harris. Now that's from a chapter written by Will Falk, who's a lifelong member of the Liberal Party. Okay, let's get into this. Uh, okay, Robert... Why don't you weigh in first? Why do you think all these years later there's still a chunk of society that when you mention Mike Harris's name still froths at the mouth? I think because he did a lot of things and they remain top of mind. I mean, Steve, we're sitting a few blocks from the Eglinton Crosstown, which is still under construction and is very late. Mike Harris 
stopped the Eglinton subway that Maryland's government started building, filled in the tunnel, which to, my, to still, to my mind, and I made a point in my Star article that this wasn't something that was tackled in the book, um, I still don't understand why they did that. Because it well, was short-sighted. they didn't have money for it. But filling in the tunnel was just, it, was, it, almost, seemed, it almost seemed like, a, <laughs> that almost seems like a van, an act of vandalism. And Doug Ford is spending all of his political capital right now building transit. And it has been critical of the Harris government for those kinds of things. So it's those kinds of those kinds of things. But I think it's mostly because he was a, uh, a substantive premier. He did things and people had opinions of them. Like Pierre Trudeau was a substantive prime minister and is still a polarizing figure to this day. Sandra Pupatello, what say you? I actually think that we should have taken a page out of Bill Clinton's book, as it didn't matter that he also introduced welfare and work for welfare, if you recall. But every time he did something that was controversial, he would feel your pain. So he knew that there were people that were going to be hurt by what he was doing or, you know, uh, there would be unintended consequences of new policies. And he would always at least some kind of sympathy. Mike Harris never did that, and nor did his cabinet. And I think that was a good lesson. It was certainly a lesson for me in opposition at the time that you have to be genuine about what impact your policies have and at least give people the opportunity to, to listen to them. And I always felt that they, they could have gone further or they would have done better uh, had they at least taken the time to speak to people. They were in such a rush to bring things in. They kind of ignored the consultation and kind of made fun that, you know, governments consult too much. Well, there's a reason that people do consult because even those wildly opposed to what you're doing every now and then come up with some really good solutions for you. And uh, I don't know, I think maybe it's after many years of that, uh, uh, looking back, um, he probably wouldn't have been seen as such a negative figure. Chloe, how about you? Your generation? Why does that Mike Harris name still get spit out by so many? Mike Harris made being blue collar feel like a bad thing. Needing social housing, needing investments in your public school, it made you feel like a second class citizen and you started to feel it once he pulled those supports out of neighborhoods like Rexdale. I grew up in the Northwest corridor of Toronto and one day I grew up in Etobicoke, the next day I was in Toronto. And I felt it because they took instruments out of my school. They shut down certain classes because now we had to fundraise for certain extracurricular and supports that we needed. I was selling cookie dough at the age of nine because I wanted to take piano lessons that were now canceled because our music teacher couldn't stay after school because there was no funding. So it really made you realize that because you're blue collar and your parents are blue collar, you need government assistance. And that's bad because you shouldn't be asking for a hand up hand out. Meanwhile, in working class communities, a hand out is something that you embrace. The government made it seem like a bad thing to be a part of a community. And if you weren't a rugged individual, you deserve poverty. And that's why a lot of our generation will not remember him kindly, because it not only affected us as kids in the school, but it really dented the morale of our parents because now they had to take extra time to pay for these individual services. So no more private tutoring at school, you gotta go to Kumon. If your parents can't take time off of work to take you to Kumon, you don't get that extra math help, you start to fail. And now this is what's happened to our generation. It's just, we know that we deserve better, but we don't trust the government to give us better. Marilyn Shirley. I think both Chloe and Sandra put it very well. I mean, an example of that is after the welfare cuts. Do you remember the, the welfare diet yeah. that was announced? And 
it was it was just and it had to be announced they thought because welfare then was so so short of being adequate and the diet that was announced was you know didn't include margarine and butter i can't remember all the details now but basic things we all in our diets i went on a welfare diet for a week you might call it some kind of uh, some kind of media uh, uh, event but it was to try to show I tried to live off that amount of money that we calculated was left over after rent and all your other expenses. In a week, I was longingly looking in restaurant windows. I can't have that. And I, I kept thinking, like, and I was eating white bread and terribly unhealthy food because it was the cheapest. And then to think that some people, after all of this, this was their life. And I think that what Sandra said, and, and you too, Chloe, is that my carers didn't pay attention and the government didn't pay attention to the real people living under those changes. And I do think, despite what, what Sandra said, and I get it, I was there, but I do think, you know, the premise of the book is basically to me is that because none of those uh, policies were changed by substantial uh, for, by governments after the fact, that therefore it's a pretty good measure that it was good policy. I think that's a pretty thin uh, excuse, a thin argument, because I think other governments could have do done more. Not everything, Sandra, I agree, it was complicated. But these kinds of things, government, I, I just think it's because they lack the, I mean, the courage <laughs> you were going to say something no, else. No, 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 you no, almost no, got no, through this no, whole show no, without no, swearing, no, no, no. unlike no, the last time you were here. Do not have the courage yeah. to do it because some of these things, let's face it, were popular with the larger population. Yeah. Okay. De demonizing Let poor people, blaming them for the deficit and all the problem. And I think problems, and I think that's why there's such a hatred for Mike Harris. Let me give the last word to Alistair. And in doing so, I was intrigued to read that Mike Harris was asked, if you had to do it all over again, what would you have done differently? And he said, I would have gone harder, faster. Yep. I know. Uh, I call that a mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> Two ways, yes, I pun think, intended. Uh, so much to think about in, in the intelligent comments that have been uh, made here. So I would just remind folks how dire the situation was in Ontario at the time record-breaking deficits, we'd hit a ceiling on how much we could tax, we'd hit a ceiling on how much we could borrow, and we received massive cuts in healthcare and welfare transfers from the federal government as part of them doing the same house cleaning that we had to do here in Ontario. And you didn't bitch about and it either. we accepted those reductions and got to work. There were short-term consequences, undeniable. But the net result uh, on the welfare side that I think is most profound is that we had a million three on welfare in a province that was not yet 11 million people. It was uh, a recession, a it was terrible awful, recession. Maryland. Can't help and, it. Uh, we then outgrew all the jurisdictions we're competing against and the welfare caseload fell yes. every month from June when we announced the welfare compensation reductions. They started falling even before we cut. And they continued to fall to 500,000. They fell every month thereafter. The best solution to how painful welfare is, is a job. And Mike Harris's revolution contributed to economic growth and job creation at record-breaking levels. And so you can take a look at the whole legacy. He had to do difficult and challenging things. 
But he did, as I think Robert has said, highly consequential things. Uh, and there is only a short list of politicians who actually do things that last, that mean something, that matter. And Harris did more than most. And as a result, he will have a legacy of both positive and negative, but he will have a legacy. And I think that's the important part about this book. I think the one thing we have consensus on here is that we're glad that you put together the Harris legacy because it's given us all an opportunity to have a conversation about one of the most uh, interesting and fascinating times in Ontario history. So Alistair Campbell, thanks to you for getting that done, if I can use an expression of the Premier of the day. And to everybody else, Robert, Marilyn, Chloe, Sandra, out of town, thanks so much for being with us on TVO tonight. Thanks so much. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.